We thank you, O God, for this day. We thank thee for the beauties of nature which have burst forth in full bloom. We thank thee for the hundreds of people who have come here to share in thy holy worship. We thank thee for the ministry in which we are permitted to participate. We thank thee for all of the good things with which thou hast blessed us, and we bow to thee in gratitude and in pride. Amen. I have chosen for my sermon topic today what may seem to you to be a strange question. Have you been to Damascus? We could say that since this is the season for going and talking about going, if it were not for the particular place perhaps it would not seem so strange after all. For within the coming weeks, we shall be saying to each other, have you been here? Have you been there? Will you be going elsewhere? We will be saying to our friends, have you been to London? Have you been to Madrid? Have you been to Paris? Johannesburg? Aberdeen, Tahiti, Mexico City. And as the, the, the names tumble from our lips, we will conjure up memories of what our visits to these particular places may have been. Those who have been to London will perhaps remember the fog. They might remember the double-decker buses, the bobbies on bicycles two by two, Big Ben, and perhaps they might remember, as I do, steak and kidney pie. Those who have been to Paris will remember, no doubt, the Eiffel Tower, the Seine, the Sorbonne, the Arc of Triumph, the French people. Those who have been to Moscow will remember Red Square, the Kremlin, the tomb of Lenin. the harsh winters. Those who have been to Johannesburg, as I have, will remember the city that looks like any hometown USA, the Kentucky Fried Chicken places, the Holiday Inns, the Coca-Cola signs, 
the IBMs, the Apple computers, the Chevrolets. And they may also remember sadly, as I do, that Johannesburg is not hometown USA, for there one senses the pervasiveness of fear and hatred and unfreedom and death and tries to blot out the memory, as I have, of ever having the experience of being there. But there are other places that we think about and we revel in the memory of the experiences that we have had there. But why Damascus? Who has been to Damascus? Why would anybody want to go to Damascus? That Damascus is the oldest city continuously inhabited in the world. So there is a great deal of history in Damascus. It is true, perhaps, that they still make the finest sword steel in the world, a commodity for which Damascus was prominent for centuries. Perhaps they even still make the damask cloth with a double facing that we in the West have come to treasure so much for our dining linens and other fine tapestries. But none of these would be sufficient as a reason for making a journey to Damascus. What is it in this ancient capital of ancient Syria that would bring one to that city? Not gold, not silver, not political aggrandizement, but Damascus represents for us a certain rendezvous, a certain meeting, a unique kind of confrontation. The meaning of Damascus is not in the city itself, but in the intentions of those who have traveled there and who symbolically have experienced the confrontation which has turned their lives around. The prototype of the Damascus experience was a man whose name was Saul. We know him primarily by his Roman name, Paul. But he was born a member of the tribe of Benjamin, 
and he was named for Saul, the first king of Israel. And we need to take a look at this man, this man Saul, for in him and in his experiences, perhaps we may find the clue that creates for each of us a sense of compulsion that drives us inevitably toward some Damascus of our own. Now, who was this Saul? What is his significance? Why was his trip to Damascus of such great importance to us and to all history? Let us look closely at him that we may better discern what kind of an individual he was. Well, we know, first of all, that he was a young man. That he was a young man proud of his youth, proud of his family, proud of his learning, proud of his city, proud of his Roman citizenship, proud of his Jewishness, proud of the fact that he was a Pharisee, and that he had studied with the best teachers of his time. He was a man who stood on the edge of destiny, trying to determine precisely who he was and how his life would be spent. And so he took up with a certain group, as young men and women often do, in the search for his identity, in an effort to determine precisely where he belonged. So we first see him engaged in an act of rather dubious propriety. For our first vision of Saul is as a well-educated, well-dressed, well-appearing young man who found himself in the midst of a rabble which was engaged in stoning Stephen to death because of his confessions of Christianity. And there stood Paul holding the cloaks. He was not yet sufficiently wretched to participate in the actual murder of Stephen. And yet, he valued the contacts of those who did participate. He wanted to be not completely in, but he wanted to be thought well of by those who were in. 
And so there he stood, holding the cloaks and consenting to the murder of Stephen. And here I must digress for a moment because of things that have happened in recent weeks that perhaps bring a striking parallel. I am talking about the parallel situation of the ritual murder in the Bedford Bar just a few nights ago. A situation in which a group of young people found themselves caught up in a situation in which a woman was done to death. Now, I know she was not dead physically, but to all intents and purposes, her life has come to an end. And perhaps when the psychologists and the psychiatrists get through with examining the causative factors, they will find that not sexual gratification, but murder, ritual murder, symbolic murder, but the motivation there. Somehow the significance of who held the coats and who did the cheering and even who was actually in contact with this hapless victim is all lost lost in the larger question of what in the world has happened to civilization. How is it that here in 20th century America we could find anywhere, in any tavern, in any town, 15 or 20 human beings who could engage in an act like this, who could tolerate an act like this, who could be consenting in an act like this, what in the world has happened to America? Is personal gratification, sexual or otherwise, so compelling is self-respect so degraded is respect for the community the community of others among whom we live so eroded that there are no factors of inhibition left will we do anything is there nothing we will not do? How about the law? Have we lost all respect for the law? One is appalled by the fact that after the attack took place, nobody ran away. The fun continued by reminiscence and by recalling what had gone on the previous two hours.
if this is the kind of civilization we have to offer to the rest of the world, what kind of hope is there? If the murder in the Bedford Bar represents the cryptic consensus of feelings we harbor about society and the individuals who comprise it, then the Holocaust in Germany a mere 40 years ago was nothing but a prelude of the fire that is still to come. There are other signs for us to see that keep telling us that this vaunted civilization of ours has somewhere gone wrong. But our preference seems to be to ignore the signs and to get on with the last big party. I'm sorry for my personal need to digress from Saul and to talk about Bedford. But perhaps in the final analysis, they are one and the same. But in any case, Saul in his day was among the consenters, the consenters to the structures of evil which characterize his times. And he liked the headiness of the company he kept. These were the in people. These were the swinging people. These were the avant-garde. These were the bright young folk, the next generation of leaders. And he was prominent among them. And in keeping with his expectations for the future, for his own future, he became more and more avid, more forthright in his search for approval at the expense of others. And so we see that he has moved from being merely a consenter to the death of Stephen. But now we find that he is organizing vigilante groups of his own, that he has gone to the high priests for papers so that he might search the countryside and drag out all those Christians he could find and bring them bound to Jerusalem that they might be prosecuted. We can see his counterpart in contemporary times. Let's go, guys. Load up your pickup trucks and your vans and let's go out and get the Christians. Let's bring them back. See that they are discomforted as much as possible. And on one such expedition, 
that Saul had organized to go away to Damascus seeking to do evil, something happened to him. Perhaps it was a day very much like today with the sun beaming down, with the beauty of nature being expressed all along the way. And we can see Paul out there on the Damascus Road with his colleagues, hurrying, hurrying that they might get to the city perhaps before nightfall in order that they might search out the fugitives and chain them and bring them down to Jerusalem. And as they journeyed along, suddenly there was a blinding light. And our young hero, our young protagonist, found himself lying prone upon the ground, senseless. Something had shaken the hell out of Paul. And when he came to himself, he knew not where he was, nor what had happened. All he knew was that something had taken hold of him. And whatever it was, left him subdued and submissive and ready to listen. And when he listened, he heard a voice that said to him, Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Why couldn't you have gone about your business weaving cloth and building tents or studying in the temple or whatever it is that you want to do, preparing to be a rabbi? Why do you persecute me? And it was at that time he noted also that he couldn't see. He couldn't see. If ever you are without your sight after having had it, you know something of the terrible dilemma in which Saul found himself. How could he chase Christians if he couldn't see? How could he do any of the things that brought him so much pleasure? What was going to happen to his professional life as he prepared for the rabbinate? He couldn't see. He was blind. Not only was he blind, but for the first time in his life, he was helpless. Somebody, somebody, had to take him by the arm and lead him into the city. Somebody had to take care of the reservations for his living quarters. Somebody had to feed him. Somebody had to do everything that he had always done for himself. He was blind. He was out of favor with God, and he was scared. Well, the long and the short story is that 
They sent a Christian whose name was Ananias to see Paul, and Ananias healed his sight and protected him. And Paul became, in time, the greatest promoter of the Christian cause that history has yet produced. But before this could happen, he had to make his trip to Damascus. He had to have his confrontation with reality. He had to come to terms with himself, with his God, and with his destiny. The significant journeys we make in this life may have little to do with geography, but they are the journeys from darkness to light, perhaps from implacability to reasonableness, from toleration to acceptance, from destruction to support, from hatred to love, from bitterness to appreciation. The road to Damascus is long and it is uncertain. It is filled with possibilities Possibilities for evil, as was Paul's original intent. Possibilities for good. Pray that on your way to do evil, that you may be blinded by the light of your own insufficiency, that you, like Paul, may hear a voice that calls you back to the responsibility of being what you are and what you can become. Those people in the Bedford Bar, here I go again, and all of the people who have encouraged and who share the responsibility for Bedford by having distanced themselves from responsibility at home. Are people who have refused to be responsible, refused to accept responsibility, refused to see the relationship between their nonfeasance 
and what is happening to the society at large. There is a world out there, but it is still to be won. It is a world of men and women in the mass, yes, but it is also a world of human individuals. Human individuals locked in intimate struggle against the arts. And even though we preen and we prance and we prate with the doubtful confidence of jesters and fools, in our hearts we know all too well that unless we learn to live for each other, and that right early, we may not live at all. That is the lesson of Damascus. If you have never been there, God grant that you may be going soon.